We know where all the birds are. We don't know where all the mammals are, Cody Lane tells me. We're walking through a young, leafy aspen stand in northwestern Wyoming's upper Hoback River Valley, baiting live traps for small mammals. The hillside is a waist-high profusion of flowers, grasses, and aspen saplings, lit gently by the evening sun. Except for the quiet, charcoal-black snags that stand watch around us, you might not guess that an intense September fire swept across this landscape five years ago. Cody is wading through a pale purple jungle of mountain hollyhock, interspersed with bright yellow clumps of tall groundsel. He reaches the next life trap, a rectangular metal box slightly larger than a zucchini. A grocery store-sized zucchini, that is, not the enthusiastic monstrosities that late summer gardens so often produce. Cody removes the bait ball from the previous night and hands it to me, an appealing mixture of oats and peanut butter. It looks like Captain Crunch, he says. He replaces it with a fresh ball of bait. With luck, the new offering, its peanut butter scent still strong, will attract a rodent. Hi, I'm Shane Sater, author of Wild With Nature. This story is about voles, mice, and some of the other amazing rodents that are all around us and that we rarely see. It's from July 30th, 2023, and it's titled Hidden World in the Aspens, Getting to Know Voles and More. If you're a more visual person and want to follow along with text and photos while you listen, you can also find it on my website, wildwithnature.com. So now, let's continue with the story. Part 1. Dog Beds and Rough Grouse Cody also adds a comfortable handful of insulation to the trap, in this case, the fluffy stuffing of a dog bed. This is the Himalayan plateau of North America. Incredibly cold, incredibly dry, Cody tells me. He's waited until July to start small mammal trapping here, but even so, the nighttime lows are not much above 40 degrees Fahrenheit. The insulation will keep a captured rodent warm until we check the traps in the morning. Down the slope from us, field technician Lauren Tate is going from trap to trap as well, doing the same thing we are. You wouldn't know it among the thick growth of wildflowers and aspens, but there are a hundred live traps on this slope, arranged in a neat 90-meter by 90-meter grid. As Lauren continues from one to the next, she flushes a rough grouse. The grouse flies to a heavily charred lodgepole pine snag in a startled whirr. Most of the birds have become relatively quiet in these late days of summer, but we can hear the piping calls of a flycatcher across the slope. All have sighted? I ask Cody. Yep, he responds. They breed in the burn. We caught one last year in a mist net. Part 2. From Birds to Voles Cody is a master's student at the University of Montana, and the area where we're walking this evening is one of his research sites. It's near the edge of the Roosevelt Fire, a blaze from September 2018 that burned over 61,000 acres and 55 homes before firefighting efforts and a shift in the winds finally ended its run. Now, five years later, Cody is studying how the wildlife has responded. Cody's research focuses particularly on birds, using mist netting and breeding season point count surveys to compare the bird community between areas that burned and areas that didn't. 
but his master's research is part of an even larger, multifaceted research project led by the Ricketts Conservation Foundation. Broadly speaking, the project is looking at how the animals of the Hoback River Valley, from songbirds to elk to voles, respond to fire, both in aspen stands and in conifer forests. Tonight, we're focusing on the voles and the other small mammals. Part 3. Aspens and Small Mammals Aspen forests are wonderful places for biodiversity. And if I didn't already know that, tonight's trap-setting walk is making it clear. In the wake of the fire, the mountain hollyhock is growing with abandon, forming stands as lush as a garden. Meanwhile, the five-year-old aspen regrowth is already as high as my head. White-crowned sparrows chip in agitation from the young trees, where the tiny cup nests of dusky flycatchers hide. A litany of purple flowers are blooming across the slope. Aspen fleabane, thick-stem aster, Engelman's aster, and western aster. Farther uphill, the openings between the aspens are covered with the cherry yellow flowers and sandpapery leaves of little sunflower. But what about small mammals? We know that they must be here, hiding among this lush community of plants. But we could spend days walking through without seeing a single vole, let alone knowing more about which species are here. And that's where a live trapping effort like this comes in. We'll return to the traps early in the morning, measuring, identifying, and marking whatever mammals we catch. Then we'll release them to go about their lives. You'll probably get to see some cool voles tomorrow, Cody says. Part 4. How to Count Voles We're back among the aspens at 6.15 a.m. as a stunning orange sunrise fades into pastel clouds. We split into two crews to check the traps. Alan Moss and Josh Lefevre form one team. I tag along with Cody and with Brooke Bowman, a bird biologist who is as new to small mammal trapping as I am. The first few traps are empty. Then we reach one that has a furry friend in it. Cody dumps the contents, mammal and insulation combined, into a one-gallon Ziploc for a better view. Then he grips the vole securely by the scruff of its neck. Wearing latex gloves, small mammals can carry a variety of diseases, and lifts it out of the bag. This is like the biggest vole we've ever caught, he says. He and Brooke work together to give the vole a numbered metal ear tag. Next, we paint his belly with a thick green line of marker. This small mammal study involves three consecutive nights of trapping hair, and we're especially interested in how many voles we recapture from night to night. Based on this proportion, we'll be able to estimate population sizes for each species and compare them between sites. Part 5. Long-tailed voles and other species. The vole is thrashing wildly in Cody's hand, trying to escape from what must appear to him as a massive predator. Fortunately for him, this unusual experience will be over soon. It only takes us a minute or two to mark, measure, and release each animal. Based on a careful examination of the genitalia, Cody can tell that this vole is a male. Like most voles, he has a somewhat stubby tail, a grayish, furry coat, and a blunt snout. But identifying voles to species is challenging. 
So far, Cody's team has found three vole species in this relatively small aspen stand. Southern red-backed voles are fairly distinctive, but the other species, montane and long-tailed voles, present a major identification puzzle, overlapping substantially in their appearance. Having this foal in the hand gives us a better chance of identifying him. Even up close, though, identification is hard. In the past, mammologists have generally worked from dead specimens, where a close examination of the teeth helps distinguish the species. Cody checks this vole carefully and takes some body measurements. This one has a surprisingly long tail, a whopping 70 millimeters. Most voles have much stubbier tails. This unusual proportion of tail-to-body makes Cody reasonably certain that this one is a long-tailed vole. Part 6. Of Voles and Mice As we continue checking the traps, we find many more montane or long-tailed voles. A substantial portion of them are sub-adults, born earlier this year. Voles are a popular prey for many birds and other animals, from kestrels, owls, and hawks, to snakes, weasels, and coyotes. So they reproduce quickly and typically die young. Vole populations often fluctuate greatly from year to year, and this site is no exception. We didn't catch a single vole here last year, Cody tells me. This year, on the other hand, they seem to be as common as deer mice. A light breeze is picking up now. We can hear a dusky flycatcher singing fragmented phrases from down the slope. Two woodpeckers, either three-toed or black-backed, are drumming from the burned conifers across the creek. When we get to our next trap, we find a deer mouse. It's easy to tell that this is a mouse rather than a vole. It has much larger ears and a long tail, notably longer even than a long-tailed vole, with gray hairs above and white hairs underneath. And while voles are tricky, identifying mice to species here is straightforward. The deer mouse is the only species that Cody and his team have found on their sites. Well known as a raider of household pantries, this mouse is adaptable and widespread across many habitats in North America. Cody checks the genitalia and tells us that this one is an adult male. Adult mice tend to be larger and browner while juveniles are smaller and grayer. Part 7. Red-backed foals. As we release the deer mouse and he scampers off, Alan and Josh call to us from farther up the slope. They've caught a southern red-backed foal. This one is subtly but distinctly different from our other voles, with rusty fur along the back and somewhat larger ears. It's a species that is strongly associated with forested habitats in the mountains, particularly those with old trees and downed logs. In Wild Mammals of Wyoming and Yellowstone National Park, Stephen Buskirk writes that this species was more widespread in the Pleistocene, when forests were more extensive on the landscape. As the glaciers retreated and the climate warmed, the red-backed voles became restricted to the mountains. In these habitats, they remain a favored prey animal for such creatures as the pine marten and the boreal owl. They're beautiful, handsome voles, Cody says. Part 8. A Nocturnal City By 8 a.m., we've checked all 100 traps and caught 26 mammals, all of them voles or deer mice.
But the morning before, the crew caught a northern pocket gopher. And sometimes, flying squirrels and weasels visit the traps. The morning has opened my eyes to a community that I already knew of, but that I don't often consider a bustling city of nocturnal rodents normally seen only in fleeting glimpses. And it's raised additional questions for me. How do all of these mice and voles share this space? The answer, it turns out, is complex and not fully known, though previous studies give some hints. Mice and voles differ in their diets. Deer mice eat seeds, insects, and even bird eggs. On the other hand, voles feed largely on green vegetation, though the southern red-backed vole also feeds on fungi and invertebrates. Part 9. Competition between voles? How might these three vole species share this space? Researching voles in nearby Grand Teton National Park in the late 1960s, Tim Clark found that these three, plus the meadow vole, overlapped in some habitats, such as aspen stands, but differed substantially in their abundance between different habitats. The meadow vole, for example, was the least commonly caught species among the aspens, but it was overwhelmingly common in wet willow swamps. Given that all four voles seem to have relatively similar diets and activity patterns, Clark suggested that the species were competing, pushing each other to the habitat extremes in which they were each best adapted to thrive. He found that meadow voles, for instance, were most common in the wettest habitats, whereas montane voles occurred in drier situations that did not support other vole species. In this aspen grove that Cody is studying, are red-backed, montane, and long-tailed voles jostling for space, shoving each other to the margins? I don't know, but it's an intriguing question to ponder. Part 10. A Snapshot of a Hidden World As we hike back out from the trap site, the aspen leaves rustle gently in the breeze. A Lincoln sparrow is singing along the creek, evoking memories of previous summer days I've spent in places like this. In the years ahead, studies like this one will help us better understand the ways in which the living community knits back together after a fire. But already, this research has given me a remarkable glimpse into the unseen life among the aspens. This leafy slope isn't just a home for Lincoln sparrows, dusky flycatchers, ruffed grouse, and swaths of mountain hollyhock. It's also a place where deer mice store seeds for the winter, where long-tailed voles graze, where red-backed voles hide from boreal owls, and where northern pocket gophers churn the soil. It's a glimpse into a hidden world among the aspen leaves. And that, I think, is pretty special. Thanks for listening. This story, like all of my work, is possible only because of the generous support of listeners like you. Again, you can also find it in written form, along with lots of photos, on my website, wildwithnature.com. While you're there, check out my donate page, where I acknowledge the community who supports my work. If you're able, you can also follow the links from there to make a monthly donation or a one-time contribution. 
For as little as $5 a month, you can become a Milkweed supporter, an integral part of the community that helps me continue sharing these stories. Thank you. I produce this recording with equipment and facilities provided by MCAT, Missoula, Montana's community media resource. Many thanks to MCAT and the Missoula Public Library for their assistance. Until next time, get outside. And while you're out there, take a moment to consider all of the unseen mammals going about their busy, hidden lives around us. If you're lucky and patient, you might even see them. <laughs>